Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you today from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Absolutely delighted to bring you what will be a fascinating and enlightening interview with writer, teacher, and public speaker, Peter Panagore. Peter will be speaking to us today from East Booth Bay, Maine. Peter holds a Bachelor of Arts in English from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and he earned his Master of Divinity at Yale University. He is a husband, father, grandfather, a two-time near-death experiencer, a storyteller, an ordained pastor, a writer, a best-selling book author, an entrepreneur, a public speaker, a TV talent, a producer, and more. And he also sees into the souls of people. More about that during our interview. Peter's first profound near-death experience happened in 1980 when he succumbed to exhaustion and hypothermia while ice climbing in Banff Provincial Park in Canada. His second near-death experience was triggered by a heart attack 35 years later in 2015. He wrote about his first near-death experience in his international bestseller titled Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me Death is Just the Beginning, which is currently in development for a feature film. He has another book titled Two Minutes for God, Quick Fixes for the Spirit, and he is currently working on two new books. One is a novel related to the movie, and the other is about mysticism for the masses. Peter, you are one amazing, multifaceted, spiritually enlightened man. Wow. Welcome to Grief and Rebirth Podcast. <laughs> I am super glad to be here, Irene, and thanks for asking me, and thank you for those kind words. Oh, my pleasure. We're going to have fun. Um, and a lot of people are going to benefit from this interview. This is going to be fantastic. Let's begin our interview. This is my first question. Okay. Please tell us about your childhood and the mystical experiences you had when you were six years old. So you're six years old. You're already getting tuned in. Yeah, I seem. I think that some people are born mystics, and I, I seem to be one of them. And so the first thing that happened to me is I was five or six years old, and I, my sisters are, were at Catholic school, and I came home from kindergarten. I had a half-day kindergarten, and waiting for my sisters to come home. I got permission to go climb the little maple tree in the front yard, and I'm sitting in the maple tree, and there's fresh leaves, and they're two-tone, you know, fresh maple leaves, little light on one side, little dark on the other, and they're flipping in the wind. The light's coming through, and I'm sitting there, my little crook hiding on my sisters, and and suddenly there was like a a large sound behind me a voice spoke outside of me and inside of me and I was raptured out of my body and I was brought into heaven like this entity this angel pulled me from my body and I could see myself in the tree and I could see myself in the presence of, it was like a 
a, a dark space and there was a certain area that was illuminated. And I could, as I said, I could see myself in the tree. I, could, I was still in the tree, but I was no longer in my body. And I was in the presence of the divine. And it was this voice that spoke to me. And this this angel, I've come to think of it as an angel. How did it look to you, this angel? Well, it didn't have an appearance. It had an energy. It was it was powerful and beautiful and compassionate. And, and, and I had no choice. It took me, a, not that I resisted, but it I had no agency in this it was it didn't have wings and it didn't have eyes or feet it was a uh, it was an energy it was an you energy just knew, and you knew it was an angel oh it, Im immediately and immediately i knew that it not only was behind me and inside of me speaking to me that it was also the voice of the divine who i had not remembered meeting before so it was the voice itself speaking through like a like a like a a, a, a a blue, like like the angel was Bluetooth to heaven, and it was a speaker speaking for the for the microphone that's up there. But it was also an independent entity, and it carried me into the divine presence. So I was bilocated. I was in two places at once. I could see myself in the tree. I could see myself in heaven. I was inside my body, uh, inside my spiritual body in heaven, and I was outside seeing these two other locations. And the voice said to me, no language. This is all, uh, I, I use language to, to describe it, but there was no language. It was all telepathic, direct contact saying, you are mine. You belong to me. You work for me. You will always work for me. You are my, you are mine. You're my beloved. And then it was over and I'm back in my body again. And, uh, and I'm five or six years old. And I thought I got to go tell my mom. So I hopped out of the tree and I ran across the yard. My mom had told me to stay outside because the little, because the baby, the newborn baby was sleeping in the house and I got in trouble for going in. But eventually I got to tell my mom that God talked to me and that I belonged to God. And my mom's response was, then you're going to be a priest. I was growing up Catholic and Orthodox. You're going to be a priest. And because, because you were a bad boy and you came inside when I told you to stay outside, you're going to learn your priestly duties today. And you're going to begin by dusting the dining room because you're not <laughs> going to be, have anybody there to dust for you like I'm dusting for your father. So this is like early 60s. My mom's a stay Right, right. Mom, so right? you see an angel and your punishment is that you have to do the dusting. <laughs> you got to do the dusting. And um, so I, but, but from that time on, from that moment on, I, I had a, a the, the angel came to me at night, every night and kind of put me to bed. Would be now, now, did you me. actually hear words or it was just a perception of a vibration? It was a perception of a vibration, but it would touch me. It would bring me comfort. It would speak inside of me. And it would never really said anything like, tomorrow you're going to get a, a C in, the, in your spelling test. It, but it was more like, I love you. I'm connected to you. I'm still present with you. And so uh, a time goes by, not a whole lot of time goes by, but time goes by. My brother, my little baby brother is now living in the room with me. Um, in this very small room in the house that was supposed to be mine, but then we had a boy, <laughs> um, who I love my brother, but uh, at the time he still, he still infringed on your territory. He infringed on my right when I was a baby. Absolutely, when we I was get mine. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he's a great guy, and so, so in the middle of the night one night, he's in the room, and I'm a little upset, and it's dark. I've gone to sleep, and I hear my voice. I hear my a, a voice calling my name a sweet voice calling my name and I wake up in my bed 
And I sit up and I listen and I hear this voice, Peter, Peter, come to me, Peter, come to me. And I don't, I, I don't know this voice, but I know this voice. There's so much compassion and love and the calling of this that I, I sit up in my bed and I, and I look around the room and the room's supposed to be dark, but it's not dark. It's sepia tone. I can see everything in the room, even though there are no lights on. And, and as I stood up to go find this voice, my feet didn't touch the floor. And I looked back over my shoulder and I was still in my bed, curled up asleep. And I was not shocked. I was at ease with this. And as if this was normal to me, as, as if I knew that this was the case. And the voice kept calling, come to me, Peter, come to me, Peter. And so I, I, I drifted across the room to the door. The door was open six inches because I was afraid of the dark as a kid. The hall light was off at this time of night. Um, and I, was, I reached for the doorknob and my hand passed through it. Wow. And the voice said to me, Peter, just step through the door. Just step through the door. And so I just passed through the door and, and I went over to the top of the stairs and there were an L-shaped set of stairs with a landing a, a, a five steps down. And on the landing was a, an elephant. I know this sounds crazy, but there was a small elephant that was communicating to me telepathically. And when I looked into the elephant's eyes, I drifted down the stairs toward it. When I looked into the elephant's eyes, the eyes were, were, were just black. And when I looked in them though, they were a, a million stars inside them, a million stars. And, and I fell into the eye and inside the eye of the elephant, there was compassion and power and love and knowledge and wisdom. And I was in this ocean of this wisdom and I, I got pulled back out. And the elephant, I should say, was dressed in Indian garb, like like Indian, like little yeah. little tiny mirrors with embroidery. Right, right, right. But, you know, I grew up in I, I grew up in Boston, outside of Boston. I was a Catholic, a Roman Catholic kid with Greek Orthodox. So I got nothing, nothing to do with Hinduism right, at all. Right, right, right. Right. So, so what do I know from that? Nothing. And and as I'm floating there, the elephant says to me, "Go down the stairs and go outside." And I knew in my head this is wrong. I'm not supposed to leave the house at night. But the love that was being spoken to me gave me the courage to go. I floated down the stairs above the stairs and the elephant was using its trunk to like go down the stairs. And so I've got, I go down the stairs and I, and I get to the landing and I, I go outside. I pass through the two solid doors, down the por out through the porch, down the stairs, down the stone side uh, front walk. And we lived, we didn't live in downtown Boston. We lived on the outskirts in a rural neighborhood about 30 miles out of the city. And, but I lived in a dead end with a wilderness behind us. And, and out in the middle of the street, it's a go out into the street and look into the sky. And so I look into the sky and, and I, I see a million stars, the same kind of stars that I saw inside the elephant. And when I was staring at the stars, they, they opened up and they showed me uh, infinity. They showed yeah. me the, the depth of the divine being and it frightened me. And in the moment of my fright, I popped back into my body again. And I woke up and I thought, what was that? What was that? Yeah. So I got out of bed and I crept around the house, made sure the parents and the sisters' doors were shut. And then I searched every room in the house for the elephant. 
and never found it. I stayed up for hours waiting, trying to find this baby elephant that was, it wasn't really a baby. It was ancient. It was ancient and it spoke to me. And so I, I carried inside of me from these two experiences, wow. this knowledge that I always belonged to the divine and that, that compassion and wisdom and knowledge and intellect and infinity were much larger and greater than the priests in church or catechism were communicating to us. And, but I, I learned to keep my mouth shut about it. You would get in trouble. You may have to do a little more dusting. <laughs> <laughs> and besides, what was I going to tell my parents that I was, you know, there was an right. elephant in the house last night and I was looking for the elephant all night. Right. So I kept my, I learned very young to keep my mouth shut. Yeah. Uh, makes sense. Okay, so now if that if you weren't interesting enough when you were six, now we come to when you're a college senior and you had your first near-death experience in 1980 from exhaustion and hypothermia while you were ice climbing in Banff Provincial Park in Canada. By the way, everyone, I read Peter's book and it's amazing. It's fascinating. And in your near-death experience, you say you experienced hell, forgiveness, and unconditional love. Yes. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. The first thing that happened was that I was I was carried into I, I died, and uh, I was carried by the same angel uh, who came and collected me. But I was resistant because I didn't understand what was going on. I did not want to go, and I'd been super frightened all night, but level-headed, trying to drive myself to survive. And so I get I get carried into heaven. And I am, I am not a physical being. There's no thing there, nothing there. There's nothingness. I have a consciousness. I'm an orb of, of, of myself, my seeing, my thinking, my hearing, everything is one thing. And as I'm there to answer your question, I, well, a, a portal opened in front of me and, and I touched this portal. This portal was, was flowing, living. Well, once I touched it, I knew it. it was all living life. And this living life flowed into me. And in the process of that, I had a life review. And the life review showed me all of the pain that I'd caused everyone in my entire life from their point of view. Wow. And I, I, I felt their pain. Now, and I would say that everyone who then crosses over has that experience. I, well, they all have a life. Most people have a life review, but not everybody does. And not everybody has a hell experience, um, but I did. Wow. And I, I, I've come to the conclusion after 40 years of living with this and doing a lot of reading and uh, is that God is compassionate and gives us what we need and a way that we can access it. And so for me, I, I was carrying, it reminds me of a Christmas carol with uh, you know, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge's partner comes back uh, and, and Marley says, these are the chains I forged in life. I had forged chains in life and the change I, chains I forged in life was the pain that I gave away. And, and I, the pain I intended to give away in particular, um, I experienced all of that pain from the point of view of the person that I gave it to times 10,000. It wasn't, a, it turns out that it wasn't this big. It was always this big. And, and simultaneous to that, I experienced all my justifications. I saw, I saw all of my justifications for causing this pain 
and 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 I I heard inside myself the divine voice that has no sound saying I love you I made you I know you nothing is hidden from me I know you I love you you're my creature and so as I went through this life review of every single thing that I'd ever done in my life in sequence of all the pain that I caused feeling all this pain I also experienced the divine love of forgiveness and and because I think this is what happened because of all the love that I brought with me from life, all of the love that was given to me and all the love that I'd given away, I had a treasure of love in my heart, which enabled me to hear the love inside me and turn toward it. And as soon as I turned toward it away from myself, because I judged, I judged myself as guilty. Mm -hmm. I had sure. done all these things, but, my, but it wasn't so much that what I had done was bad because I also saw that all humanity and the whole universe is less than the divine. Its, its structure is that everything here is broken, it, the, except for the divine love inside of everything, mm -hmm. but everything is fragmented and less than, and I didn't create the universe. It wasn't my fault that it was built this way. I just lived in it. And so I wasn't, I, God did not judge me. I judged myself in relationship to the divine love, the immense, infinite nature of eternal, timeless love that in, in the ocean I was swimming in of love. And I turned to it and I was utterly forgiven. And, and, and then I was infilled with, to the, to the point of almost obliteration. To, to, I, I was huge, but there was so much love, beauty, joy, compassion, knowledge, understanding, bliss, healing, peace, uh, awe, adoration, um, wholeness, knowledge, all of these things were one thing, love, beauty. They were all this one infilling of, well, it was, it was, well, it, it was greater than all of, if you had taken, if you could take all of the love and all the earth and, and, and then have all of the orgasms of all the history of earth with with the with the greatest amount of love that ever happened and then multiplied it by googleplex you would not even come close, so close to the infinite oneness of being so like i've got two questions about this so i assume that you call sin the ways you've hurt other people yeah it's yeah it wasn't it wasn't it's, it's not, not sin a, like that we've done wrong or whatever you have a whole after this you have a whole different interpretation of what sin means it means it means hurting another or yourself and how and did they also help you with the pain others had caused you oh no i didn't carry in any of that i not a drop of that came <laughs> with um, but but i'll do tell it i will say that all the suffering that i had carried in my life was gone all of that was and it wasn't so much that it was like erased with a pencil and it leaves a little mark on the page it was as if it had never existed it was erased a hundred percent, you know, rebooting the uh, uh, refragment. What's the word? Uh, recalibrating the hard drive, going back to nothing, and rebuilding the whole thing. There was no suffering left. Wow, that's amazing. So obviously, this changed your life forever, and changed the ways you perceive the world. You want to? So now you come back to to the Earth plane over here, and you've had this amazing experience. You live. So now, how are you? Like I was so changed from my spiritual awakening. How did this change you in the way you looked at life? I mean, I can so relate to this. Everything. Uh, yeah. I, I, the first thing is that uh, I stopped being religious. 
I had all of my belief systems were erased, all of them. I didn't believe in my American culture. I didn't believe in my family ethnicity. I didn't believe in religion. I didn't believe in the Bible. I didn't believe in anything, nothing, nothing, zero, zippo, because everything here seemed to me to be less than. Illusion, Maya, uh, Samsara, everything, in, 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 everything is, it was cartoonish, black and white, two-dimensional. And I, my, my inner eye was always, is always oriented to give it the wrong thing. Cause don't, don't think that it's above me because it's not, it's everywhere. But, but you know, my eye was always aimed at heaven. And, and, and my view here is like, I'm an avatar. I like, I, I know that I live inside my body. Um, and everything changed. Uh, my whole career orientation shifted. I was gonna be, go to graduate school in architecture, join the family firm. Um, and I didn't do that. I, I, I changed my direction. I became dislocated in time. I, how did, I lived... how did your family deal with all these changes in you? Well, that's interesting. I kept it a secret for 20 years, but, but when I got back to, uh, to my home, you know, months later, uh, I asked my folks because they're still alive. I asked my folks about it a couple summers ago. I didn't tell you what had happened to me, but what did you notice? And my dad said that my mom and my dad had talked about how different I was. They said that the biggest difference was, and he said, Pete, it's not that you weren't this way before. It's that you were more this way. He said, you were kind and compassionate oh, and thoughtful and helpful that you, you, that your behavior changed. That you lived a different way towards everyone and everyone you met. Um, and so, but they were pretty upset that I was not going into architecture. And because um, I've been aiming towards that for my whole life. Uh, and, and, and drawing and working in, in, the, in the industry and all this kind of stuff. And what are you going to do with a divinity degree? You're going to be a priest in, you know, and like, I don't know, dad, I'm not even, yeah, I don't know, but I wasn't going to tell anybody anything because I didn't want to be thought of as a kook. I didn't, I didn't understand what had happened to me. It was 1980. I couldn't Google it and I couldn't find any books. I didn't even know what to call it. All I knew is that, that, that nobody around me could see what I could see. I could see an instant, this moment I got back, I could see everybody's aura. I could see a shimmer about an inch out of the surrounding every single person I met. And, and if I looked into a person's eyes, I could fall inside them. I could see the light inside them radiating out from them and in a perceptible way. And it wasn't just that I could see it, I could feel it from them. I could, I could feel, I could feel their field. Um, I didn't know what to do with it. I was completely confused and completely lost. So when you get back there, you have to tell God, you, you need more of a tutorial. If you're going to, if you're going to give us all these mystical experiences and all, can we get a little, I mean, with me, what happened to me with the accident and all, I, I was totally transformed also. And when that voice came into my head, I still don't know who that quite was. Can we please get a little bit of a tutorial about what's going on <laughs> we just know things it's the veil i think that the veil it keeps a lot out i only brought back about one percent of what happened to me and and when the voice speaks inside us it's it's actually speaking to our consciousness and our soul first and then it gets filtered into our body so we're still getting like a limited message yeah that makes sense to me 
So like want to ask you, Peter, you also had a second near death experience. I did. Well, tell us about that. And did, what did that teach you? I mean, man, you've been uh, very trans transient on this planet. over. I am. I am. A, I am very transient. <laughs> I, I am not from here. And I'm, right, and I'm, right. I'm, I'm looking at my watch. When do I get to go? When do right. I get to go? But after my first near death experience, it took away all of my fear of death. And so by in 2015, uh, I was I had run 5K the day before. I was in a yoga class. I was fit and, and healthy. And but my family has a congenital heart problem. And in the middle of yoga class, I had a heart attack. <sighs> and so I took myself out of the class, not knowing exactly how bad it would be, but thinking I'm super fit. This can't be that bad. Uh, but it was. And uh, I died in the ambulance on the way to the catheterization lab which was an hour and a half away from where I live. And also close to 45 minutes after the initial onset of the incident. And so when I was in the, and I couldn't, I can't take opiates. So I refused to take painkillers to this long ride down. And it was like having an elephant standing on my chest, but I was, I was like to the doc, I was like, you know, well, I'm gonna be vomiting. I'm having a heart attack. I'm gonna be in the back of the ambulance and vomiting. I don't think that's a good idea. Well, what are you gonna do? I said, oh, I'm gonna meditate because I've been a meditator since before my near-death experience. And, and so one of the great things about uh, meditation is that if you, if you practice looking at your pain with your breath and your, and your focus, you can rise above your pain. As long as you're looking at your pain, it still hurts, but you can rise above it and take the pain away. And so I was meditating the entire time. And which means I could hear everything that was going on in the ambulance and the paramedic, I hear her call into the catheterization lab. And I've been to this hospital a whole bunch because I had been a church minister visiting people there. And I hear her say, we're losing him. We're losing him on the way. We're losing him now. And the doc had told, I should tell you this, that, that my son came to the, the urgent care center um, and a doc had told him to say goodbye to me. Oh like my your goodness. dad, your dad's not going to make it. So I'm in the ambulance. I'm not making it. But but my attitude, like I'm a little teary about it now, but it's only because I love my kids. Of um, course. Right. But but uh, really, I, I was like totally relate. joyful. I'd been waiting for this day for 30 years. I told wow. my wife the first chance I get to die legitimately and not take my own life. I am out of here. And so here's my chance. Today's the day. And so I. I open my eyes, I hear her radio in, I look up at her, she, she like, oh my gosh, she's awake. And then she puts on her game face and now the pain rushes back because I'm out of meditation. So I got, I got to immediately go back in to manage my pain. I go back inside myself, but only now I'm dead. I'm back and I'm, I'm not in my body anymore. As soon as I turn my mind back inside myself, I'm in the dark space in between. And the same angel comes like, metaphorically speaking, rushing down toward me, this entity of energy speaking words of love. We love you. Come home. It's time for you. Welcome. Come back. It's finally your time. Come to us. Come to us. And so I'm like, yeah, baby, I'm out of here. So I, I, I get, I, you know, like attached to the angel and I start to go. And, but then I think to myself, I have time. I'm not, I know what's going on this time. I'm not confused. And so I decide to make sure everybody's okay. So I turn around and I look down inside my body 
and I see my son who said, dad, I love you and came in close, looked me in the eye, squeezed my hand. And I realized I see inside him, I see his pain and his, and his fear. And I realize he's not ready for me to go. He's only in his mid twenties. And then I think about my daughter who just left her ex. There was abuse and they had a baby, a brand new baby. And we had just rescued her. And who's going to protect the baby? Who's going to be there to help my daughter? And, and, and my wife, she already knew I was going. She's like, she, she'd been prepared for me to, to take off. So she was, she was okay with it. But I couldn't, my kids, they weren't ready. And so I turned back to the angel. And the angel had receded and then came rushing back toward me again. And I communicated, I'm staying. And I just turned away and went back inside. Wow. And, and the angel said, you again. You're really giving me a hard time here. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> I keep coming for you. You keep staying. Yep. Wow. This is the, so you, for your audience, the sec, the first time I died, I chose to come back too. Right. Um, and it's so, amazing. so it's just like you're, you, it's like, like you really negotiated. I, yeah, well, you know, yeah. you know, I do believe that Abraham negotiated and that whether that was in my head or not, I don't really have any idea. But, but I was given a choice both times and I came back both times for the sake of love. And the big thing is, is that I came back this time and the first time, it, knowing the length of my life is the wink of an eye. So on the other side, it's, life is so brief. It's a second long, it's a second. And so I, I figured that I could endure here that first time and I figured they, my granddaughter really needs me now. She's six years old, and I see her. I gotta pick. I gotta pick her up tonight, and um, you know, after 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 school today, and uh, so I made a good choice for her sake. Yeah, I totally relate to that, Peter. I totally understand that. So your movie, your book, Heaven is Beautiful: How Dying Taught Me Death is Just the Beginning, is being made into a movie, which is amazing. So. Right. Uh, that's got to be divinely meant. So would you like to tell us a little bit about that so that we can all queue up and go to see it when it comes out and all of that? Sure. Um, it, it happened because I was did an interview with somebody and somebody heard this interview and she called me the next day. She's a near-death experiencer. And as we're talking on the phone, um, I Google her and you know I vet her. I'm like, oh my God, this woman's a producer. And so we end up being friends. We talk for a year. And then one day she says to me, so who's doing your movie? I'm like, I don't know, nobody. She says, I'm doing your movie. Wow. And in the middle of that phone call, she called her ex. Who they were, they still produce. And these people have, they have golden globes and they get an arm's length of awards for over decades. And um, she got him on the phone. He read the book over the weekend. And within three months, we had a really great contract. And, um, and so... Where we are now, I've spent the last year, this fictionalized book that you mentioned, that is, uh, has been changed I've, I, to a more of a memoir style. They wanted me to write a fictionalized version in the second person and create a composite female character of all my girlfriends and my wife so that there could be a, a, a romantic interest that would be a, a counterpoint through line uh, for dramatic effect. Uh, and he, they love the book. I've, I got it to him a month ago and they loved it, but they're, he's like, you know, it's got to be a memoir. I see that now. I made a mistake. So I'm back to writing again, which is totally cool. But the good thing is, is that the other book about modern mysticism, I'm now weaving these two things in together. So now it's going to, it's more of a memoir, 
Um, and the purpose of the first book was to show the truth that there are lots of people, maybe half the population, who have mystical experiences, who don't want to talk about it in synagogue or in the mosque or in the church or, or on the cocktail circuit or wherever you're doing because it's taboo. And yet I discovered in, the, in over about 18 months of traveling around and speaking that mo half the population that I was talking to all had visitations of the dead. And that and the, the, they had uh, that visitation of the dead transformed their grief into hope. And that, and that it was the reason that they were in church in the first place, but it was never permissible to talk about it. So where the book's at right now is I'm rewriting. I've got about 90 pages to go, but it's, they're talking, they're talking sequels and $30 million budget. And um, so it's going to be a couple more years before it comes out, but I'm working very hard on it. I love working with these people. Would you please let us, when you come out with your book, your mystical book, and when your movie is coming out, come back. I'd love that. I'd please love that. Come back. And, and I, and I'm sure that so many people in our podcast audience would be very interested, including me. Well, so, there's a lot, there's a lot more, there's a lot more to my mystical life than than I've let out into the public, um, and that's it's just there's a lot more to it. And so, yeah, very cool. So I would love to bring that out to people. And you, I know that we're getting the gist of it, but can you explain exactly how you say that death is just the beginning? Oh, because living life is sort of a dead end. <laughs> like. When I when I was dead, the first thing that I realized when I was dead was that I'd always been this other thing. I've always been my consciousness. I am not my body, and so the the beginning for me was when when death, when I first walked through the door of death, I discovered that I that I already preexisted. So it seemed like a beginning to when I to me like a new beginning but it's more than just a beginning. It's a return to home, to where I previously was, to where I am still. And, and so it's a transition. It's, a, it's not an ending, it's a continuation. And it's, a, it's an opening uh, toward an, a, a better, newer, more full suffering, free existence, uh, awash in divine beauty and love. Would you agree that this is school and that is home, that this is why we're here? Because a lot of people say that we're here. We come here, we come in a body, we learn lessons, we go back. Yeah, I, I, I would, except for it seems that I'm, this is where I'm ignorant. I'm in the ignorant place inside myself. And when I was dead, uh, anything I wanted to know, I knew. I knew everything I wanted to know. I knew, I knew my parents' future. I, I saw my I saw my granddaughter's future when I was dead. That's why I came back, and I saw my parents' future with or without me. That's why I came back. And so I, I'm this this may be a school, and and I say it may be because 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 I think that there are souls that have that have learned so much that they end up in the unitive state of being when they die. And once you're in the unitive state of being, that's where all knowledge is. Uh, so I, I, I think that my, my purpose here is uh, to be a channel of love and peace. And that seems to have been the origin of my life. So, so yeah, I think it's a place for, for souls to come to to learn. But I think that there are souls who have been, who've learned so much that 
the true learning is on the other side. Well, the way I'm picturing it is because those are here, they're learning. Some of us are in elementary school, high school, getting our, you've got your PhD already and you've come to help other people on the planet and teach people on the planet. I think, that, I think that that's what it's like. Um, I, you know, we're all in different school of learning and some of us have already, some of us have, have graduated and we're back to help people. Um, yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, right. When you say you see into the souls of people, what do you, so you kind of mentioned this, what kind of information do you receive about them? I, I see the essence of their goodness of their being. I see the light that is inside them. And because I can see the light that's inside them in the counseling sessions that I do, I, I, I listen with the ear of my soul. I look with the eye of my soul and I hear what their struggles are. And I, and I understand at a, at, a, at a root level how to help them. So I don't, I don't like hear, oh, when you were six years old, you had this experience. It's not an angel speaking in my ear. I experience the essence of their soul itself, non-linguistically. And I use, I encourage them to tell me their story so that I can gather more information. And as I hear them speak, I'm able to bring them comfort and peace. And that's really, it's, I think, I think one of the problems that we experience as human beings is that we think we are our troubles. We think we are our suffering. And while our sufferings are real, and I, you know, I just like everybody else, my back hurts, you know, you know I break my ankle, whatever the suffering, right. my emotional pain, whatever it is, but I don't identify with my body. I don't identify with the world. And my, my job is to help people identify with their higher self, to identify with their consciousness. And when, and when I can help them do that, that's really, I'm a channel of light. I channel the light that's in me that is already in you. And I try to make that connection so that you can see that for yourself and give, give the person a, a hope and an understanding of the temporality of their existence by helping them connect directly to the divine. And when you can connect directly to the divine, that's where all healing begins, even in the midst of suffering. So, all right. So for instance, a kid comes to you and they have all kinds of problems, you know, abusive parents, da, 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 da. They're looking for direction. They're in their early twenties. Um, can you actually give them direction about steps they should take or you're mostly just getting them in touch with the fact that they have a soul and, and they're here to learn lessons and all of that kind of thing like they're like what do i do next can you help well, them? both both of those things especially both in situations of, of domestic violence and domestic abuse i spent seven years sitting on the domestic violence homicide review panel for the state of maine on the attorney general's office with a bunch of uh detectives and um the social service workers in domestic violence. And so I'm uh, very practical about uh, safety. I'm very practical about violence. Um, I can, I do help people reflect on their circumstances to help them guide them out or through uh, difficult circumstances in their lives. And even to help them make career choices and different things, maybe they're on a wrong path or-, or I help them reflect for themselves. I, I use, I have some training in family systems therapy and and behavioral therapy and a few other things like that. And I help people listen to themselves to find their path by hearing what they're saying. I hear what they say, I reflect back to them. I help them think things through. I do, I just the other day, right. I helped a woman do that. 
in the meanwhile, also help her connect her divine source. To her source, that's fabulous. So that's, that's sort of what you do. That, just, that must be the focus of your spiritual counseling? Yes. Would you say? And then well, you help- yes, that and mysticism. I help people process their, their mystical experiences. Okay. And then, then you also mentor and coach people. I do. I mentor and coach people through um, their mystical lives. So I've had, I've had clients for several years at a time. And for instance, uh, we'll read through mystical books and they'll read the book, which I've already read and ask me questions. And then I help them um, process that information to deepen their spiritual journey. Uh, and I also, I just teach people how to meditate and pray. I've, I've been doing that for 40 years and I don't consider myself, I consider myself a perpetual student. I'm always a beginner. I read this book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind a long time ago. And I, I approach my spirituality as a beginner every day. And so I'm always trying to find the source inside myself and I'm able to teach people how to find that inside them. And so I mentor that in particular. That's, that's fabulous. And so in this way, you say you're a channel of divine light. So it, it, with all of these things, that's what you're doing. You're just channeling the light within you to other people, right? It's the most important thing there is. More important than any. So I, I spent 15 years on TV and I wrote these stories every day. And, 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 I, and I used the language of the storytelling to weave the light into the language. And when I was in front of the camera, I would, I would bring, my, bring myself, move myself out of the way and bring the light into my throat chakra and into my eyes, and I would project the project it into the mic and send it to the lens. And whatever containment that I would put it in, whatever story I was telling, was secondary to trying to channel the light to people directly. And the audience responded. I mean, it was every all the time. They they didn't really understand what I was doing. They just knew that they loved what I was doing. Right. They felt it. They felt it. They couldn't quite interpret what it was, but they felt it. Yeah. Um, I think some of that's happening with this podcast. I, I really, I really do. Um, it's a blessing. And now I'm really fascinated about the fact that you offer end of life care, because I can't think of anyone who would be more um, adept at helping someone to know that it's not over when it's over. And so tell us how you midlife a person into death. And could you give us a couple of stories of people you've midwifed into sure. death? Um... I was a church pastor in a harbor town in the state of Maine and got a call one Sunday afternoon to get over to the hospital for a, a person who was a, a, a known sort of pirate, a, a, a good-hearted pirate in our town, a big family. So I, got, I hopped in my boat and I rowed across the harbor and I got to the hospital and I walk into the, the nurse who meets me. She was a, one of our deacons in the church and she walks me into this room and there's like 15 or 20 people in this very small waiting room and everybody's crying. And um, I'm like, oh, what's, you know, and I'm starting to, and I kind of know people, but I don't know everybody and I start to deal with this. And suddenly there's a knock at the door and it's the nurse. And she says, Peter, you know, it's a Sunday afternoon. They're shorthanded. She says, um, I, I won't mention his name. He, he's, he's, we need your help. We're shorthanded and, and he's, he's, you have to pardon me audience but he's bleeding out of every orifice mm-hmm. he, and and can you can you come with me she didn't say this in front of everybody she's like peter come out in the hallway i come out in the hallway she's like you got to put a gown on and gloves on and a mask you've got to come in the room and hold this guy because he's bleeding his eyes are bleeding his nose is bleeding oh his just like blood coming out of everything and so i go in the room 
I'm all gunned up and, and he's, he's in a panic. He's, he knows he's dying. He knows he's done bad things in his life and he's scared of dying. And so I get in bed with him. I, I kind of get behind him and I hug him and the, and the doctor and the nurses they're working on, I'm just kind of holding him and, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm whispering in his ear. I'm like, it's okay. Given everything is beautiful, everything is beautiful. Just trust me, just listen to my voice, look for the light, just look for the light. And, and he, he died in my arms. And, and he, but before he died, he just listened to me. And what I was trying to do, and I wasn't out of the closet at this time, nobody knew that I had died. And I was channeling the divine presence that lives inside of me and beyond me and inside of him into his ear so that he could see the light inside himself and, and know that all will be well in his death. Uh, and, he, and he died in my arms. Wow. Um, there were lots of other circumstances of, of helping the aging um, process their, the fact that they're dying and, and it, it, how, how do I say this? Uh, processing with their families, all of the things that you need to go through, forgiveness is given, um, acceptance of circumstances, telling the truth, all those sorts of things that um, families need to know for some kind of healing because, because family dynamics they fall apart at funerals. They fall apart at death. If there are stress fractures in your family life, that's when they're going to come open and they break open big. And so it was dealing with, with family systems uh, and, and family historic family pain. And these days, I mostly, because I, I still live in a small town, um, these days uh, I don't get called on very much locally uh, except for in extraordinary circumstances. But I, I counsel people with when they know that they're going to die, and I help them reflect on their lives, um, and uh, and after I help them with grief, the people who survive. So that's kind of what I'm doing. Oh, that's time. wonderful, and it's so so important and very necessary. And I love your story about coming clean to your congregation and forgiveness. <laughs> Would you share that with our, I love that story. Would you please share that with our. Sure. In, in brief, I, I, I went to this congregation on the coast of Maine in this really swanky resort town, but there was um, fiscal malfeasance in the church that went back a decade. And it took us close to a decade to uncover the embezzlement that was going on of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it became a poisonous place that poisoned the entire community uh, and all of the organizations and the boards around town. And they turned on me because I was, because I, I'm very uncontrollable. I, I, I know where I'm from. I know for whom I, who, to whom I belong and for, to whom I work. Uh, You're out of the box, guy. You I'm are totally here. out of the box. And so you can't. And so eventually I pressed and pressed and pressed with help. I had allies. And eventually um, we found the perpetrator. Uh, and under great threat against me, they tried to destroy me personally, professionally, wow. my reputation. These are powerful people. These are, you know, major oil company executive types and former CIA spies and like, like powerful Ooh. people. And they were gunning for me because I was pushing on the buttons. And, um, but we found the perpetrator and we prosecuted. And uh, I tried to bring her back into the church again. She was the treasurer, of course. That's always the treasurer. And, um, and so, but the church refused to uh, have some sort of reconciliation. So 
when they, they apologized to me and, uh, and this is how it happened. I, I was in church one Sunday after all this was over. I mean, this, was going, this went on like for 12 oh, years. 11, it was 11 years. 11 was, years. And it got worse and worse and worse. And I got accused of all sorts of terrible things. And it was bad. And eventually I figured out it was her because, because um, I was working, I, my neighbor owned the local general store up the street from me. And he was also the president of the water company. And I thought, she's the treasurer of the water company. I bet there's something going on there. And so I got him to look at the books and um, then we could prove it because the, because the people who were powerful in my church, once, once we found out that she was doing this, they wanted to sweep it under the rug and pretend it never happened. Nobody was ever going to know. $200,000, okay? It's a lot of money. And, um, but I was like, there's no way we're going to sweep this under the rug and keep the poison inside this community. There's no way we're going to do that. Not with Peter. No chance. So we, I, I, forced the, I forced it out into the open. And then once I forced it out in the open, um, I actually, before I forced it out into the open, I went to Turkey for three weeks. I led a trip with, in, into Turkey with my daughter and a bunch of people. And um, the, it, when I was out of the country, they tried to really ruin me. They tried to defrock me. And um, so long story short, Sunday morning, after this is all over, I've got my sermon in my hand and this deacon comes up to me and she, and he says, you know, Peter, and there's a bunch of deacons in the, in the congregation. It's nobody's in the church yet, just these deacons. And I'm wondering what the heck they're all doing here anyway. It's before, you know, nobody's supposed to be here yet. And this guy comes up to me and says, Peter, you know, I'm here to apologize on behalf of the deacons, on behalf of the whole congregation for the way we treated you um, for all these 11 years. And it was really bad. It was really, really bad. And we apologize. You must've had a lot of faith to put up with us for all these years. And I thought to myself, I have been lying to these people for 11 years. I don't have any faith at all. And I decided in that moment that now I know that they love me. Now I know that they trust me. Now they know what kind of man I am. I'm going to tell them the truth. So I climbed in the pulpit. I tossed, I, I tossed my sermon, like tossed it to like drama, a little drama. And I said, I'm going to tell you something here this morning, and it's not going to be easy for me or you, but I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the Bible. I am not a believer. And the fa everybody's face fell. It, it's just shock. And then I told them what happened to me. It was the first time I came out publicly, and I told them, I said, this is how I died. This is what happened to me. God is real. Heaven is real. It's more real than here. This is not where you're from. Why do you, how do you think I was able to put up with you for 11 years with what you did to me? It's because I know where I'm from and I know where I'm going and that gives me incredible strength. I have, I have strength and power that is not mine that I get to leverage all the time. And, uh, and it was the most beautiful day. It was, I, d I don't know that everybody believed me, but everybody saw how I behaved over 11 years and their presence unshakably, unshakably. Can't, you can't, you can't ruin my belief because I don't have any. You can't hurt me because I'm not from here. But it must have had a tremendous impact while they were doing this on your family. Um, oh, you it was been, bad. You must have been afraid of being fired, losing your income. People were talking about you. They were being nasty. 
and somehow, and you know, they would probably turn away from you when you would walk in a room or whatever. You went through well, all was, of that, I'm sure. They, they, they took me. So when I first got to this congregation um, and I, uh, in my very first trustees meeting, I had gone through the books. I'm a smart guy. I'm going to look at the numbers. I go back 15 years in the books and they do not add up. 15 years, year after year, they budget this amount of money and never this amount of money shows up in the books. What's, why is this discrepancy over 15 years? How come you guys didn't fix this? They blew up like an explosion happened in the room. Books flew, people spittle in my face, pounding on the table, red face, my first oh trustees my meeting. It was, it was like, oh, I guess I pushed a button. And so then within- Why were they protecting this person? Uh, they turned out they were protecting themselves. It turned they were that, part of it. They had, they had, there was the, a, the church was set close to the road and by, and like the fourth time a car hit the church, they decided back in the eighties to lift the church up and move it back. And during that period, that's when the fiscal malfeasance started. These people were in charge of that. And then she came in. So there was an overlap of, I, I say fiscal malfeasance because I don't want to say that they were embezzling because I don't know that, but they were, a lot of money went missing because we can't prove that. And so, so on my first Christmas Eve, um, this is like right after this meeting, I walk into the church and, and it's packed. There's 350 people in the church because I'm the new minister and I'm the young guy and I got a ponytail and like, and so as I walk through the door, one of the deacons leans in and she whispers, whispers in my ears, I'm going into my first Christmas Eve service. We're going to fire you the first of the year that you're done. And oh I'm like, gosh. and everybody's like excited. And I'm like, what? And so then they call me to a meeting, these four guys, these four guys, they call me to a meeting and, and one's an attorney. He's in prison for embezzlement now. One's a commodities broker, one's a, a, a vice president of a major oil company, and one was a former operative for the CIA. And, they, and the first thing the operative says to me is this meeting never happened. If you ever say it happened, we're going to deny it. You're going to be a fool. You're going to look like a fool. We're going to fire you. We're going to fire you. You're, you're done. And so that, so that began, I resigned nine weeks into this job. I resigned again, 18 weeks into this job because there was a group of people who were like, we got a problem here, Peter. We think you can help us fix it. Stay, stay, stay. So the whole time was poison, poison, poison. And um, they walked out the day that, that I stood in front of the congregation and told the story against their will of the embezzler and how we had her arrested and how we were going to prosecute. And they literally walked, stood up in the, and walked out and never came back in. Thank wow. God. And so, but the only reason why I was able to do that, and it was bad, they were, they were not just going to defrock me. Wow. They were going, they were ruining me financially. Um, they were going to ruin me for good in my career. So anyway, that's the- Very that's, godly, very godly. You know, I, <laughs> I, got, I, I got angels on my side. I, I get that, Peter. Wow, what a story. Um, can you talk about the new book you're writing about mysticism for the masses? I, I can't wait to, to talk to you about that and to read it. Sure. So what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking the book. I, I wrote two books in the last two years, and I've decided that what I'm going to do since the producer for this movie asked me to change this book into a memoir. Um, I'm combining the two books. And so the, the thesis is this. 
in the early part of the 1900s, a professor from Harvard Divinity School, who was in England, before, uh, pardon me, in Scotland before, who is the founder of American psychology, his name was uh, uh, William James, wrote The Varieties of Religious Experience. And in The Varieties of Religious Experience, he gives four characteristics of mysticism. It's a, a mystical experience is transient. Mm -hmm. It has a beginning and an end. It's passive. You don't make it happen. It happens to you. It's noetic. It leaves you knowledge, wisdom. It leaves you wisdom inside your soul that is ineffable, unspeakable. You know that it's in there, but you can't say it. And the example I'll use is that, so somebody dies and that beloved person comes back and visits the living and communicates to them directly, telepathically, love, beauty, joy, forgiveness, whatever the message is, but it's telepathic. And this, this person who's in utter grief now shifts from maybe a belief in the afterlife or maybe not even a belief in the afterlife to knowing that their deceased loved one is still alive in heaven. And that's a major shift. And um, that's a, a type of mystical experience because the after effect of it is life changing. You never, you, you can't ever say it. You can't ever express it. To, it sounds like a Hallmark card when you say it. it you know, Joe still loves me because he's alive in heaven. It has no, not even close to the experience of Joe coming and communicating that or Saul coming to communicate that. Right, or I think that's something that happens when people communicate with a deceased loved one through a medium and they get those messages. I think it's very similar to that and it is life-changing and I have experienced that. Um, tell us, you seek to promote peace, joy, and love. I can't figure out why, Peter. Anyway, we know you seek, I'm teasing you. We know you seek to, to uh, promote peace, joy, and love. Tell us about those three virtual programs you offer called Not Church, Mystic Tea Zoom. I love that. And Near-Death Experience Open Eye. So Not Church is, uh, I, got, I, I was a poor fit inside the church all the way along because I'm, I'm a mystic and I'm not a believer. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, but I'm, I'm steeped in mythology and uh, metaphor and symbol. And so I use, Not Church is on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. on YouTube and we have a global audience and I, de I deconstruct the Christian gospels because Jesus sounds like a near-death experiencer to my ear. And so I, using myth uh, and metaphor, unpack the mysticism that's hidden right in plain sight. So if they want to get this through YouTube, they just have to put not church? No, you have to put Peter Panagor. Peter you, have to, Panagor. you have to search Peter Panagor. Um, and there's a link at peterpanagor.love. Um, you might be able to find it with not church. A bunch of videos would show up, I'm sure. But I just the, want to make sure that they can get it because that's fascinating. And what is your mystic tea zoom? So the mystic tea salon is a follow-up to that where it's, we had 35 people there this past week. Uh, and we we talk about mystic, your mystical experiences, and it's not I, I as a salon, um, I'm the facilitator for the salon. But there's wisdom in the group. I, I have no uh, illusions that I'm some kind of guru. I'm just a seeker after God, like everybody else. And and there's everybody in our group has had a mystical experience of some kind or other, or they're a seeker after the divine. And so we have conversations about uh, mysticism in a safe environment where you can say what you want. And the open eye 
is has had a, a name change. It's back to centering prayer. I teach centering prayer, okay. centering prayer, and I teach um, and practice. It's a practice group. I've been practicing a mashup of centering prayer, contemplative meditation, and Kriya Yoga for 40 years, in addition to using Kriya Yoga in my Hatha Yoga practice. Um, so I practice all this mashup spirituality. But the, the it's a Mondays and Wednesdays live on Zoom at 8 a.m. Eastern. And I, I do a little teaching this morning. I taught out of the cloud of unknowing. Uh, sometimes I taught, I teach out of Rumi. I, I, I mine the history of mysticism that's global and we practice meditation together because here's the thing. When, when you practice meditation that's aimed toward the divine and Jesus said, Jesus said a bunch of these things. He said, make your eyes single and your body will be filled with light. When you pray, go into your closet and close the door, go inside yourself. When, um, when two or three are gathered, I am there. There's this divine presence that happens when there are two people who are gathered together, the divine presence shows up and multiplies. And so when we, when we practice our meditation in a group, either over the lens or through the, with the microphone or in the presence of another person, when you aim your heart, seek heaven first above all things, when you aim your heart at the divine, then, then the light that I bring and the light that you bring, they magnify each other and they make both of our meditations deeper. And so this is, I've been running this now for six months or so, and people keep coming back because it works, because the depth of their meditation is proportionate to the number of people who show up. And med the thing about meditation is that it's global and there's two factors to it. There's, there's breath and there's mental focus. And if you're a Sufi and you're doing the dervish, you know, you're with one arm down, or you're, you're a Zen master and you're shooting a bow, or you're a rabbi and you're at the wailing wall, it doesn't matter what your form is. If you're using your breath and your mental focus and you're aiming your heart at the divine, you peel away your false self, peel away layer after layer after layer and create a container for the divine light inside yourself. And in that radiance, shares itself there's the, the only effort with this is the mental focus to get out of the way and it's meditation is this practice of stopping the story inside our heads stopping the duality to rest inside the peace and when you rest inside the peace repeatedly over years every every time you you meditate you you put a grain of sand in your pile over and over and over with every single breath and that pile never goes away it always grows bigger and bigger. Your capacity for the divine presence enlarges, enlarges, enlarges. And when you practice in a group, the whole thing gets hotter and inflamed and bigger and deeper and more peaceful and more connective. It's a function of, it's just a function of spirituality. I mean, all over the world for centuries and all different religions, they meditate together. They, they, they you just, know, that's, that's fascinating because, you know, there's so many meditation uh, um, teachers and, and, and modalities and they're teaching you to meditate by yourself but you're saying that it's much more powerful when you're doing it in a group you're much more powerful when you do it in your group I, I i practiced by myself this so this is the these last six months are the first time in my life that i was able to that i'm really able to practice with other people when i was in divinity school there was a couple of people i practiced with but you know i've been a meditator on my own for 40 years. And the reason why I practice it, the reason why I stay with the discipline of meditation, and it is a discipline, is because it works. It brings peace into my day every day. 
every and so so on the day that I meditate and I'm driving down the road and the guy cuts me off and then flips me off and I don't meditate that day I'm, I get more agitated on the days that I do meditate I'm less reactive I'm a lot more peaceful that's that's fabulous I like that less reactive um definition and, I think that makes a big difference I had I had an altercation with someone recently I should have meditated that day and I would have been less reactive yep yeah, and, and it's cumulative too, Irene. The more you practice this, the more capacity you have for the living peace inside you. And it's not just this this biological experience because meditation has biological, like you can stop pain with it and you can have peace with it. It's it's the it's the decreasing of the false self, of the egoic self, the ending of duality, and the realization of your true higher consciousness, your true higher self, and that becomes a your perspective. It becomes who you are. That's uh, and, true. I see that. Yep. That's true. Um, well, when it comes to the, this is my passion. When it comes to the importance of healing, you say that love is all that matters and the way out is in. Speak the to way us out about is in. that, Peter. I, I was just talking about, just talking about that. The way out is in. The, the inner world is much vaster than the outer world because on the inner world is, where, where the story that runs inside your head, the, the egoic self, that's the, that's the veil that prevents us from seeing the divine. And when we can quiet that story, even for a moment a day, that, that we begin to understand the depth of the presence of heaven within. Every, everything there is, everything there is, is secretly made of love. Everything there is, is made of the divine presence, and including us. And if we're able to quiet ourselves and look within ourselves, we have access to heaven that is right here. And when we see it here, we then see it everywhere. It's much easier if you want to perceive the divine in another person, find it in yourself first. And once you find it in yourself, because you are that light, then you, what you see in the other person is the same light. The light in me sees the light in you. When I see the light in someone, when I see the aura in someone, it's not me, it's the light seeing itself. And so when we, all over the world, all over the world, in every religion, the way out has always been in. The mystics, that's what the mystics teach everywhere. That's, that's fabulous. And everyone now wants to get a hold of Peter Panagore. They want to take your they want, to, they want to take some of your offerings. They want mentorship. They want you to check out their souls. Tell us how to get a hold of you. All your all the ways and spell it out. Everything. PeterPanagore.love. PeterPanagore.love. P-A-N-A-G-O-R-E. And I'm about to start uh, with a new, uh, new Earth, New Earth One Network teaching workshops. And that's going to begin in about a month from now. So we're going to have a lot of workshops on Kriya Yoga and meditation available there. Well, as let well. us know, and we'll and we'll put that out there for people. They may be very interested in that, you know, from the grief and rebirth world. And Peter, your tip for finding joy in life—it all has to do with your connectedness with the divine. It all has to do with diving inside yourself. It's not something that's external. The the, the joy that I experience in my life is the connect my connection to the holy. 
It is the aiming of my of the oneness of my being, of my whole mind, heart, and soul at the divine connection. Because the physical world is full of suffering, but heaven is not. And the more one attaches to the divine in heaven, the more joy one has, even in the midst of suffering. That's a perfect way to segue into thanking you for this amazing, enlightening, and remarkable interview. I'm personally looking forward to reading your new book and seeing the movie based on your, on your other book titled Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me Death is Just the Beginning. Peter, you have infused this interview with hope and with love. And I would like to add heartfelt gratitude for this opportunity to interview you today. Thank you, Irene. Thank you. And here's a loving reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings, and bye for now. Mm -hmm.